It's expected that 4.1 billion people will watch on TV tomorrow the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. That is over half the population of the world. And that's staggering, isn't it? I don't know who came up with that figure or how they've arrived at that, and I guess we'll find out if it's true after the event. But over 4 billion people are projected to be watching the funeral tomorrow on TV. It will be an amazing event full of pomp and ceremony with all the royal symbolism and imagery on show. The Queen will rightly be celebrated for all that she was and, and did. Now, I grew up in West London, and as a family, we often visited the town of Windsor, which is just a few miles away. It's just the home of Windsor Castle. And one of the things we'd often do, as well as going to watch the changing of the guard and all that kind of stuff at the castle, we'd also go for lots of walks as a family in Windsor Great Park. And Windsor Great Park is a massive 5,000-acre park right next to the castle, which is full of uh, royal farms, there's um, royal homes, and there's open air, most of which you can go for a walk through, and it's all open to the public. And I remember one occasion, as probably about five or six-year-old, uh, being in Windsor Great Park with my parents and my two older brothers, and we were suddenly kind of walking along, just kind of walking through the park, and suddenly we saw this tatty old green Land Rover kind of drive past and then pulled up next to somebody who was on a horse. And then the person in the tatty old Land Rover got out and started talking to the person on the horse. And the person who got out of the Land Rover was a lady with a headscarf on. And then suddenly my dad realized, it's the Queen. It's the Queen. And I was only a little kid, but I remember the day, my dad said, there's the Queen, look. And, and there she was, just a few hundred yards or so away, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, wearing what looked like old clothes, a headscarf, and she was on her own, just driving this tatty old green Land Rover. And my dad has a photograph of, uh, of the scene from that day, but I haven't been able to get a hold of that, unfortunately. But this picture on the screen is pretty much what she looked like. It was an older Land Rover than this, but this is what she looked like. And she, was, she got out of the Land Rover, she was talking to the person on the horse. There were no police around. This was kind of back in the days before all the kind of modern security that you see today. And she looked nothing like the glorious image. I don't think I really believed it was the Queen, because in my head, all the pictures I'd ever seen of the Queen was like this. And she looked nothing like that. There she was, just very, very opposite to that, very ordinary. She just looked like a farmer's wife out for a drive in a kind of rusty old green Land Rover out for a drive. And the contrast between the two couldn't have been more stark, couldn't have been greater. The queen in all her splendor in a golden carriage and, and, the, and the queen of the tweed skirt, headscarf and an old Land Rover. It would be difficult to get kind of two opposites, really. Anne Headley brought to my attention this week an interview with one of the men who'd been the Queen's chaplains. And she said, and, and this guy, this uh, Queen's chaplain, said that on one occasion the Queen had told him that she longed for Jesus to return during her lifetime so that she could lay her crown at his feet. Wow. That's awesome, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? What she longed for was that the, the King of kings, that Lord Jesus would return during her lifetime so she could lay her crown at his feet. Now, all kings and queens are ultimately a pale reflection of the King of kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the queen in her finest splendor with all the kind of trappings of royalty was only a pale reflection of the King of kings. And even the amazing contrast between the queen in a headscarf and uh, driving that beaten up old Land Rover and at the same time being the queen on the throne, reflects something of the character and the nature and the work of Jesus. 
But as amazing as a contrast as that was, it's nothing compared to what we see when we look at Jesus, this huge contrast in Jesus' life. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or kind of something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Now Jesus was God and yet he didn't try to hold on to his royal position and all the glory and the trappings and the splendor of heaven. Instead he humbled himself and became a man who ultimately allowed himself to be nailed to a wooden cross. Seeing the queen that I was used to seeing in pictures with her crown and royal robes driving an old Land Rover and and wearing a headscarf instead of a crown was really quite staggering. And I don't think, as a kid, apparently, I really believed it was the queen. But in in an infinitely greater way, and with even greater contrast, Jesus, God the Son, the eternal God, became a helpless baby, became a real human being, just like you and me, and lived, spent the first 30 years of his life or so in an unpopular northern village in Israel. And the passage that we're looking at today, which is Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, deals with this great step of humility, this this huge contrast between Jesus the King, seated on the throne, and then Jesus the man, the one who stooped down in humility to come to this world. As we're going to see, though, it doesn't just deal with Jesus stooping down to earth to become human, as staggering and as amazing as that is. It also tells us in this passage that Jesus then made it possible for human beings to be raised up to heaven, to be seated with him on his throne and share in his glory. It'd be like the queen that day in Windsor Great Park, picking the person that she was talking to that day and then taking them back to Windsor Castle and then sitting them next to her throne in the royal throne room and making them an equal with her. Now that would be outrageous, it would be scandalous, in fact it would be impossible, nobody would have let that happen. But that's precisely what Jesus does for those who put their faith and trust in him. He comes down, he reaches down to this world, he takes us and he lifts us up to the highest heaven and he gives us a place with him on his throne. So let's read from Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 9. If you've got a Bible handy, if you want to turn with me, you can follow as I'm reading it or you can just listen as I read it, whatever you're comfortable with. So Hebrews 2, and we're going to read from verses 5 to 9. This is the third of our weeks uh, looking at the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 2. And the writer says this, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowd him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Over the past two weeks we've seen that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were under pressure. This was probably only 20 years or so after, 20, 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead and returned to heaven. And they were under pressure. They were new Christians, but they were Jewish people of Jewish heritage. And they were under pressure from other Jews who hadn't become Christians to turn away from trusting in Jesus as the Messiah and, and, and worshipping Jesus as the Messiah 
and to turn away from that and to go back to their old Jewish roots. And it seems that some of them maybe also were focusing too much on the angels. And maybe we're even worshipping the angels alongside Jesus as some kind of equal almost. And what we saw last week was that the writer demonstrated that Jesus is immeasurably greater than any of the angels. Because Jesus ultimately is God. He's God the Son. And the angels were made by Jesus to be his servants when he created the universe. So why worship angels? That's no, that makes no sense whatsoever. Jesus is greater. He is supreme. And in the verses we've just read, the writer continues this theme of Jesus being greater than the angels, but then he also develops it. And then he begins to look at what Jesus has done for us. He introduces us to this idea that Jesus left the glory and the splendor of his royal throne, his rightful position in heaven, and became for a short while a little lower than the angels. Those great beings that he created, Jesus himself becomes lower than those beings that he created and descended further down to our level as human beings, a little lower than the angels, so that he could die in our place there on the cross. So that if we put our faith and our trust in him, we can be lifted up to heaven and given the same place of honor and glory right now that he has seated at God's right hand. So he says in verse 5, it is not to angels that he's subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. Why focus on the angels? They're not the ones who are going to rule and reign over the new world that Jesus is going to create when he comes again to rule and reign. It's going to be Jesus himself that is going to do that. Jesus is going to bring this world to an end and then create a new heaven and a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth without any sin. And he is going to rule and reign over it, not the angels. So let's not worship angels, let's worship Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 1 verses 10 to 12, which we looked at last week, says this, In the beginning, O Lord, speaking about Jesus, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Jesus is not only greater than the angels, he's greater than the universe he's created, as, as impressive and as stunning as this universe is. Jesus is greater. He made it. He spoke it into being, just like that. But before the glory of ruling and reigning over a new creation, Jesus chose to leave the glory and the honor and splendor that he'd always had alongside God the Father. And he chose to come down into this evil world that was infected and damaged by sin and live as a perfect human being, live as a perfect man, and then die on the cross to deal with our sins. He needed to live as a perfect man because he needed to be our substitute, our representative sacrifice there on the cross so that he could represent us and take the punishment for, for your sin and for my sin. And so in verse 6, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers of some verses from Psalm 8, which is way back in the Old Testament. And if we look at Psalm 8 up on the screen, we can see the context of these words that he then quotes in, in the passage that we've read. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8, which contains the section, or a little bit more than the section that's then quoted in Hebrews 2, says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, or the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim 
the paths of the seas. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is quoting only verses 4 and 5, but it's helpful to see the whole section that he's kind of referring back to. God has placed mankind as head over his creation. That's what these verses teach us. God has placed us, he's created humanity, mankind, as head over creation. We are only just a fraction lower than the angels. We're just a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And as human beings, we've been crowned with glory and honor. We've been given by God delegated authority to, on his behalf, rule over this creation. We've been given responsibility for ruling over this amazing one-of-a-kind planet. He said, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. So mankind, humanity, is the very pinnacle of God's creation on earth. We've been made in God's image. We're here to represent him and rule on his behalf. That's one of the reasons God created us. One of the purposes for our being here on earth is to rule over creation on God's behalf. We're here as his representatives. We're here to manage this amazing creation, this amazing planet, and to be good stewards of it on his behalf. We're not just animals that have evolved a little bit higher than all the other animals. We have been created by God as a distinct and a separate creation. You are unique, you are made in the image of God. And part of the reason you are here, that I am here on planet Earth, is to rule over planet Earth and to steward this great creation. We've been made in his image to rule over the rest of creation, and we need to take that role really seriously. We are to rule, write this down, we're to rule over creation and be good stewards of it. We're to rule over creation on God's behalf and look after this planet, look after this creation that God has made and has given to us to rule. We've got a really important job to do and we need to take it seriously. We need to rule and, and, and look after this planet and make sure it's, look at, it's looked after and that its resources are well stewarded. But what we mustn't make the mistake of doing as we do that is what some people end up doing, which is where we end up worshipping creation or by being slaves of creation and the environment, so that that ends up ruling and running our lives. That's not the point. It's really important that we take the environment seriously and that we do all that we can on, to, to rule well on God's behalf. That's, what we're here. That's one of the reasons we're here for. But we mustn't make environmentalism into a religion. Creation exists to serve humanity's needs. That's what the Bible teaches us, not the other way around. We're not here to serve creation, we're here to serve God. Creation is here to serve us. It's under our feet as those who rule over it. Creation is here to serve us. And the earth's resources are ours to use, but we must make sure that the earth's resources are used wisely and carefully in a godly way. However, we need to be really careful that we don't end up making a religion out of environmentalism or a kind of God out of the environment and creation. Otherwise, we'll end up worshipping created things rather than the creator, which is the great sin of humanity, as we saw last week. So God has created humanity as just a little lower than the angels in his cosmic order. And he's created us to rule and to govern this great planet, his creation on earth. But we all know that something has gone seriously wrong with creation of mankind, don't we? Humanity was created to rule and reign over creation with glory and with honor. But that's just not how it is, is it? That's not how we see it. That's not our experience right now. 
Verse 8 says this, in putting everything under him, that's human beings, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. What God originally created was good. It was wonderful and it still is amazing, but something's gone tragically wrong with our world, with, our cre- with God's creation and with the human beings that are meant to rule over it. Creation isn't subject to humanity in the way that God intended it to be, in the way that God created it to be. We live in a world of storms, of earthquakes, of famines, of animals that are dangerous. They weren't created that way, to to say nothing of selfish human beings. Living on planet Earth is difficult, it's dangerous. And that's because sin has come into the world and has messed everything up. Sin has wrecked everything. Sin has wrecked creation and sin has wrecked mankind. Paul says this in Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. When sin entered into the world, the creation that God had made was cursed, and we've been living with that reality ever since. This is what we read happened in, in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. The world that God created for humanity to rule and to reign over has been cursed, and everything is in a mess, isn't it? Paul says again in Romans 8, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And if you've given birth or if you've watched a mother giving birth, then you'll know just how horrible the pains of childbirth are. And and that's what this world is like. That's the, the image that Paul uses here. It's in pain because of sin. This world is a mess because of sin. It's in the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And we find this reality dealt with in Hebrews chapter 2 where the writer quotes Psalm 8 and then he explains it and applies it to us and applies it to Jesus. God created mankind to rule and to reign over creation in all its glory and honor, yet the reality is that something has gone horribly wrong. At present, we don't see everything subject to mankind. Creation's in a mess, mankind is in a mess, and humanity certainly isn't reigning in glory and honor. We get sick. We die, we experience pain and sorrow. People experience the ravages of a creation that's gone wrong. Famine, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, hurricanes, floods, forest fires, and so on. And our own lives often don't turn out the way that we expected. Our health gets messed up. Our marriages sometimes go wrong. Or we struggle to find someone to get married to. Or our kids go wrong. And we sometimes wonder, what is going on? What is it all about? But then this passage in Hebrews tells us that we have an amazing God who has an amazing solution and an amazing plan. At present, we don't see mankind reigning with glory and honor over a perfect creation. But, says the writer in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. At present, we don't see the world as God created it and as God intended it. But what do we see then? Well, if we've trusted in Jesus, then through faith, we see Jesus. God came to the earth in the person of Jesus. God became a man, and as a man, like the rest of humanity, he was then made a little lower than the angels for a short period of time. Jesus never ceased to be God, but he came to earth to rescue mankind, to rescue you and me. 
and to rescue creation. And to do so, he had to become a human being, a little lower than the angels. So he came as a man and then as a representative of mankind, representing you, representing me on the cross. He died there and took the punishment for our sin. And now that he's tasted or or experienced death for everyone on the cross, he's been raised from the dead, he's been ascended to heaven, and he's now crowned with glory and honor. And the amazing thing is that not only is Jesus now receiving the rightful honor and glory that he deserves, but the amazing thing is that he then shares that glory and that honor with those who put their faith and trust in him. Paul, speaking about Jesus in Ephesians 1, says this, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For what? For the church. So God the Son lowered himself to become one of his creation so that he could lift us up out of the pit of our own sin and out of the mess of this creation and place human beings in the place of honor that they were created to have. And so Jesus fulfills what we've read in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is how things should be, but we all know that it's not how things are. We don't see creation subject to humanity as it should be. But in Jesus, we see this psalm fulfilled. Jesus brings this psalm to life. That's what the writer of Hebrews is is teaching us. Jesus brings this psalm to life, and Jesus makes it true. Now there is a man, the God who became a man, who rules and reigns with honor and glory. And the amazing thing is that he then shares that honor, he shares that glory with the church. The church is just everybody who who throughout history have put their faith and trusted in Jesus. He shares that with the church. Verse 10 of Hebrews 2, which Joel's going to look at next week for us, and I'm just kind of stealing this verse from his passage, but it says this, Jesus has brought many sons to glory. Jesus has brought many sons to glory. In other words, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus get to share in the glory that Jesus has as he reigns and rules forever. Through what Jesus has done for us, he's brought many sons to glory. In other words, those that have repented of their sins, who've put their faith and trust in Jesus and have uh, uh, surrendered their lives to him, have been adopted into his family. They've become sons and daughters of God. We're able now to call God our Father. They've become sons and daughters of God, and not only that, but they've been rescued from the mess of this world and have been given a share in Jesus' glory. Paul says in Ephesians 2, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This morning, if you have trusted in Jesus then God views you right now as being seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. That is your position. That is your identity this morning, as sat down at the right hand of Jesus. You are there with him in the heavenly realms. And when in the coming ages Jesus returns to this world and creates a new world and a new heaven where he will rule and reign forever, we will be physically ruling and reigning over that world with him. The glory and honor that we were created to have ruling over the earth, which was lost when sin entered into the world, will be restored to us if we trusted in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the children of God. In other words, Jesus is going to make a new heaven and a new earth which will be free from sin forever, just as we will be free from sin forever if we've trusted in Jesus. No more bondage to decay. So no more storms, no more hurricanes, no more famines, no more floods or forest fires or dangerous animals. Instead, we will rule and reign with Jesus over a new perfect creation where there will never be any sin. 
That's why Peter says to us in 2 Peter 3, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This world is not our home. As, as lovely as it is, this world is not our home. This planet is on borrowed time because Jesus is coming again and he's going to make a whole brand new planet, a whole new creation. Jesus is going to roll it up like a carpet, we read in Hebrews here, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And the amazing thing is that because God the Son left the glory and splendor of heaven and became a little lower than the angels for 33 years or so, if we put our trust in him, then we've been lifted up with him to that same place of glory and honor that Jesus now has at God's right hand. And when at the end of time, Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth, we will rule and reign over it alongside Jesus, sharing in his glory and honor. Isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't the gospel amazing? It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Isn't the good news about Jesus phenomenal? It is better than we could ever have imagined. It's not just God forgiving our sins. It's not just God giving us the same standing with Jesus that... Uh, sorry with himself that Jesus has that's phenomenal it's God giving us his Holy Spirit so that we are then adopted into his family so that we can call God our father we're adopted as God's children and as we're going to see next week that means that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters Jesus actually calls you and I if you've trusted in Jesus Jesus calls you his brother or his sister if you've trusted in Jesus then Jesus is your big brother now that might sound irreverent, it might sound blasphemous, but if you don't believe me, then read verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 2, which Joel will be looking at next week. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his sister if you've trusted in him. And next week we're going to hear all about that. God making us as holy as Jesus and giving us the same position and relationship with God that Jesus has. It would have caused a scandal if when I was a kid... I saw the Queen in Windsor Great Park dressed in her old clothes. If, if she'd then taken the person that she was talking to by the horse back to Windsor Castle, and, and then she sat them on her throne with her and, and proclaimed to the world, this person is now going to reign over the UK and, and my dominions along with me. There would have been uproar, wouldn't there? There would probably been a coup. There would have been a rebellion in the country. No way would anybody accepted that. It would have been totally unacceptable. And yet that is exactly what Jesus does for you and me if we've trusted in him. He left the glory and the splendor of heaven. He became for a short while a little lower than the angels. He became a man. He lived the perfect life so that he would die on the cross and then represent you and me, represent humanity, and be punished in your place and my place for all our sins. And then three days later, he rose again and then ascended back to heaven, to his place on the throne at the right hand of God, to be crowned with glory and honor as the conquering king. And this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are also seated with him. That's how God looks at you right now. You are seated with him in those heavenly places. That is your position in Christ. That is your new identity. He doesn't see you this morning as some kind of miserable sinner. That's what you were before you trusted in Jesus. You are no longer a miserable sinner. You may still sin, but you are not a miserable sinner. That is not God's identity. That is not how he defines you. And you need to stop thinking of yourselves as sinners. We are now those who are in Christ, we have a new nature, we are partakers of the divine nature, says Peter. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. God now sees you as seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And when Jesus comes to rule and to reign, 
and creates a new heaven and a new earth, then you and I will physically share in his rule and his reign with him and we'll share in his glory. Phenomenal. Outrageous. Staggering. Let's just take a few moments to stop and pause and and just try to take something of the enormity of that in. Let me just bow our heads for a few moments and just try and get our heads a little bit around the enormity of the gospel. The gospel isn't just our, our sins forgiven. The gospel is so much bigger, so much better than that. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never actually surrendered your life to him, if there's not been a moment in your life where you've kind of come before him and acknowledged the fact that you are a sinner and that you need him to lift you up and change you and make you into a new person, maybe that's something you could do this morning, to take that step and to ask him for that, not only that forgiveness, but that whole new identity to be made holy, to be given this great future and a hope. If maybe you're not ready for that, then do by all means Come and chat with me afterwards if you'd like to explore more of what that looks like. And for those of us who've given our lives to Jesus, for who all of this is true this morning, the one who is going to share his glory with us, outrageous, isn't it, that Jesus would share his glory with you and me, then what better response is there to to make right now than to worship him together? So we're going to do that right now as we sing together, Behold Our God. We're going to sing and just focus on the one who is ruling and reigning in honor. And the staggering truth is that we get to share outrageously in that glory and honor, both now and especially in that future time. And then after we've sung this song, Matt's going to come up and lead us as we take bread and wine together to remember and celebrate our Lord Jesus. Thanks, Daniel.